Welcome to Meeting on the Mound. I'm Jake Reiner. As you know, one of the great things about the game of baseball is its ability to bring in fans from every walk of life. My next guest is someone from the broadcast news and political world. He is an author, political commentator, and Emmy Award winning anchor. He hosts a weekly podcast called Why Is This Happening? And he is the host of MSNBC's All In with Chris Hayes. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Chris Hayes. Chris, happy to have you on Meeting on the Mound. How are you, sir? I'm good, man. I'm 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 uh, I'm I'm sort of trying to struggle with the the reality of pandemic winter, like we all are. So a little talk about baseball is probably a welcome relief. I'm glad to hear you say that. That is fantastic. Now, Chris, before we get into baseball, I I wanted to congratulate you on the awesome job you and the folks at MSNBC and NBC did during the election coverage. You guys were patient, informative, and I couldn't take my eyes away from the screen. I started to think about why it was so captivating to watch the vote tallies come in and keep tabs on Steve Kornacki the whole time. And one of the things I came up with was it was kind of like watching a game seven scenario where the drama continued to ebb and flow much like a championship game. Did you kind of have that same view when you were covering it and watching it? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that the, what they share in common is like that you don't actually know the outcome and the suspense is real. And each little change in a, in a close election could be the difference, right? Um, I mean, the one thing that's weird about it, and I kept trying to reiterate, reiterate this, and this was something I, I took off. Someone, someone said this on, on Twitter, I think, that, you know, it would be like someone taking a baseball game and then scrambling all the innings and plays <laughs> and then reading it back to you <laughs> with like, so it's like a, a three run Homer in the first inning is actually what like the big early vote totals in Philadelphia were. And had they been counted early, it would have been like, Oh, Biden is up early, but because we got that read to us late, then the three run Homer in the first inning feels like a home run in the ninth inning with two outs, but it's not actually. And, and that was actually part of what was so bizarre about the whole thing is that the, you know, a baseball game actually unspools forward in time, in real time. And this was, a, the game had been played. We were just getting the, the play-by-play out of order like days late, but yeah. it, it did have the same sense of suspense. No, definitely. That's a, that's a great way to put it. And I almost think that like, even though we kind of knew what the outcome was going to be eventually, it still was sort of crazy how captivating it was to watch vote totals come in. And when you think about that in just like a general sense, you sort of think like, I'm just watching numbers going up on a screen and the, and the percentage is changing. But you guys were able to make it into sort of this visual spectacular. Can you talk about why it was so captivating to watch? I think, again, it was captivating because everyone wanted to know the answer. <laughs> like, and I think it's, you know, it, the, the metaphor here with baseball is really, I think, good. Is like, if you tried to pull that off with a, if you tried to pull that off with like the exact same level of production um, that we had and Steve Kornacki doing his sort of incredible, you know, wizard, wizardry at the board on an election that was like a state house race in Missouri, it wouldn't work <laughs> because, right. and this is actually the problem with baseball, right? It's like watching, a, you know, a, a August game between two teams that are 20 games under 500, you know, it, it's the same baseball game. And like, it might be a close game that comes down to some decision that 
manager makes about putting in a relief pitcher. But what the reason that a game seven or a, or a game five in the World Series has that drama and that pathos isn't the production. <laughs> it's, it's because you, it's, the stakes are high and you want to know who won. So exactly. I think, you know, we did, I think the, the network did an incredible job production wise. And I think you're right that there was something bizarrely captivating about watching the vote totals. But, but the, the 95% of the work of that was the fact that people wanted to know the outcome and that was the only way to know it. Yeah, it, it's, so, it's so crazy too because you think about watching like the, the playoffs, right? And you know your own team. Like you know all the players on your team. You know all the bench players. You know the guys that you could bring up at some point in your, you know, and this year in the taxi squad. You know everybody in the bullpen, um, kind of like your own home state. But then you're watching the election coverage and you're looking at states like Pennsylvania and you're looking at states like Michigan and you're learning about new counties you never heard of before in your life. And it's sort of like <laughs> yes. watching another team that you've never really watched during the regular season. Right. And then like a few games into a series and you have like heart, like like really deep thoughts and feelings and takes about the other team like oh this guy this middle reliever they're bringing in oh this guy's brutal on lefties and you're like uh Loudoun County don't worry Loudoun County hasn't been counted in Virginia we're fine I know Loudoun County like it's the exact same like yeah oh well no obviously look well he's up by this and Allegheny's Allegheny's still got 32,000 votes out we all know what I mean that's that's a 75 percent 25 percent split on those 32,000 votes Allegheny we know that we're fine (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly. You're trying to calm yourself down. It's, it's super fascinating. That's, and I, I enjoyed watching it for sure. So I, I kind of want to talk to you about your uh, Cubs fandom because I, we know that you're a huge Chicago Cubs fan, but you grew up in the Bronx. But yep. we know that, you're, that your father was a, uh, a North Sider in Chicago, and that's kind of what led you to supporting the Cubs. But I just kind of want to hear it in your own words. Yeah, my dad, my dad grew up in North Side of Chicago on um, basically Ashland and Devon, um, not that far from Loyola University. Um, and he was, you know, he was a, a Chicago sports fan. He was a an athlete himself. He played for a, a football for a college prep school. He's a good, good football player. Um, and I mean, I like to joke that like, you know, I was born probably, I don't know, three or four miles from Yankee stadium. And my dad had the choice of like raising me a fan of the most successful sports franchise in all of history or literally the most benighted <laughs> and, and chose the latter option. But I honestly think it was in some ways it was mostly an accident. And the accident was this, um, you know, I think we all have like a, you can probably remember the first Dodger season that you were really into. Yeah. Um, maybe it was 88 for you. I don't know if you're probably too young actually for that. I am, but you continue. are, um, for me, it was, so for the Cubs were really good in 84 and they had Rick Sutcliffe and they had Ryan Sandberg. Of course. Um, and I was five years old and, and, and got really into it. You know, it was a sort of just, just old enough to kind of be aware and, baseball cards and listening to the games uh, and watching them. And then they, you know, they, they blew a 2-0 NLCS lead to the San Diego Padres back then it was only five game series. And then 85 was the, so I was, I was into the Cubs and then that, then 80, 84 to 85 was the bears um, Super Bowl, legendary Super Bowl team, Super Bowl shuffle McMahon, one of the best right. regular season records of all time. Um and I was, you know, so I got really into that. My dad was really into that. So then, and then Michael Jordan's rookie season was that year or the next season for the Bulls. Perfect. So I just think I can imagine, it wasn't that my dad was like, we have to make you Cubs fan. It was more just like, like there were these, these three 
epochal events in Chicago sports history that happened in quick succession enough that just made me converted me really into a, a, a diehard Chicago sports fan, Cubs, Bears, and Bulls. And then, you know, 89, the Cubs are back in the division series against the Giants, and they have Andre Dawson, uh, who's awesome, and Mark Grace. And then, you know, at a certain point, and then, and then, and then in later in life, I would, you know, my, I would happen to meet him, fall in love with uh, Kate, my now wife in college, who's a Northsider. Hilariously enough, her father grew up in Evanston, probably two miles from my dad, but grew up a Sox fan because his people were Southsiders. So he's a, he's a diehard Sox fan to this day. Wow. Um, so she was not raised a Cubs fan. They're, they're a Sox family. But we ended up moving to Chicago when we graduated college in 01 and we were there for six years. And so, and they were actually pretty good. That, that, those were the years of, um, that was like the Mark Price, Kerry Wood years. Um, yes, love that those was teams. the, that was the Bartman year in 2003. And I was in Chicago during that period of time and was, you know, going, I went to 10 or 15 home games. I, I was, I, I was like a freelancer with not that much to do. And I would, you know, buy cheap tickets and I would do standing room only with my buddies. Um, so, so then that even deepened it more, you know? Um, right. So yeah, so that, that's sort of how it developed there, but it wasn't really like, I don't think my dad like set out to make me this way. It just, it was more a little bit of like the fact that he was rooting for them in circumstances that, that produced that. And the funny thing about my dad is like, he's much more of like, he's a Brooklyn Nets fan um, in basketball and like he's a little more ecumenical in his, his <laughs> fan. I'm like, I'm actually a more diehard Chicago sports fan than my dad is probably. That's fascinating. And the the old phrase comes to mind, misery loves company, right? And so when like when when you're a, a fan of a team that has struggled mightily, and even, you know, the Bears have struggled mightily, and before Michael Jordan got to the Bulls, the Bulls were a struggling franchise. So it's it, I almost prefer or or appreciate the fact that your dad was a North Sider and you sort of gravitated towards these teams because I have a feeling that if you were a Yankees fan and only understood success and never really understood failure and depression, that you know, you wouldn't be able to uh to, to go through life. It's sort of teaches you those life lessons of like you know my sports team I could love them to death but they are going to disappoint me and a lot of teams disappoint their fans a lot more than others I I honestly think that dealing with your team losing is like a really good bit of psychological training about like releasing desire and having kind of distance from things that you can't control and I think it's really hard when you're really young I mean I remember I re- really remember the 89 San Francisco Giants series was brutal. And I also remember right around that time, there was this two or three years where the Bulls couldn't get over the Pistons and just being so consumed with like rage, frustration, sadness at those losses. Cause I hated that team as yeah. everyone did. Um, the, the, the Pistons team, the Pistons, the, the, yeah. the bad boys Pistons team. And, and I do think that like, it does help you. There's some kind of, psychological coping that you kind of learn to do through the disappointment of sports fandom that I think is actually pretty um, adaptive and useful. Yeah. And it also makes the, when you finally do get over the hump and win a championship or witness your first championship, it makes it that much sweeter. 
It's and, unbelievable. And, and for and you, well, you guys, I mean, the, you, yeah, I, I, you, the, and I, I was, I mean, I had to say like, I lo- I really do. I, I have tremendous affection for that Dodgers team and franchise and organization. And, Thank and you, Kershaw. Chris. I appreciate that. That's so nice of you to no, say. No, I do. I really do feel that way. We were, we were texting about this. My friends and I were just like, I'm on like a Cubs thread of like Cubs fans. And like, it just, we, we were, t- before this year, we were talking about actually, you know, would you rather, like, what would you rather have the Cubs or Dodgers experience? And it, the Cubs, they, they kind of came up very fast. They got that World Series win. But like, I think there was an, ex- we had an expectation that we were going to have a Dodgers-like profile for probably five or six years of like mm-hmm. dominance and yep. excellence. And that just didn't happen. It kind of fell off. And the Dodgers did get that, but they didn't get the World Series ring. <laughs> right. And right. so there's this question of like, because the Dodgers really have been like, they have been the team in the National League, the dominant presence in the National League. I mean, you know, some seasons by insane margins, yep. historical margins. And until this year, I'd be like, yeah, I'd take the ring, you know, as much as amazing as it is. But I, so I was happy to see that, that at the at the sort of end of this arc that they they, they got it. Yeah, I've always had that thought of like, would I rather support a team that's consistently historically bad or a team that is always consistently good, but never fully reaches that pinnacle? Although the one thing I will say, like the thing about baseball, you know, the structure of a baseball season and, um, you know, the structure of a baseball season and the baseball playoffs, which I think they probably will keep expansion of, which I feel ambivalent about, is that it's pretty tough to rally yourself to invest a lot in a really crappy baseball team. <laughs> like it just is. I mean, and, and people actually, do though. People do. It's which people is, do. I have a I have a little bit of a hard time. Like I will I will not live or die if um, in the year. You know, they went through five or six years before the Theo era, before that 2015 season when, you know, they make the wild card. You know, they have Joe Madden. They have. They went for five or six years where they were you know a, a basement team every year. Yep. Yep. And like. You know, I just sort of emotionally checked out. I would check the, I would check my app. I would like listen to a few innings here and there, but there is something really wonderful and rewarding about a, a team good enough to be in the hunt. They don't have to be excellent, but a team good enough to be the hunt just over the keep- course of the baseball season, where every day you listen to the game or, or, or you know, or watch it at night through the MLB, you know, app. If you're, you know, not in market. The, the rhythms of that, there, there's, no, there's no sports experience to me quite as enjoyable and also draining as, you know, pitch for pitch with, the, with, a, with a good baseball team. They don't have to be great, but a good enough baseball team to, like, be in the hunt. But as soon as they tip over to being a bad baseball team, it's like, you just, it's just unwatchable. Like, a, yeah. a, a late season baseball game between a team that has no hope like there's no it's just i can't bring myself to do it whereas that's not like i will watch i will absolutely watch a late season like you know atlanta hawks sacramento kings basketball game yeah yeah well the thing is you bring up a good point which is a baseball season you know taking out this season, of course, but a baseball season, typically 162 games, it's a marathon. And in order to stay engaged throughout the entire season, it, do, it is helpful when your team has a shot every single year. So that does make a lot of sense. Now, I did want to get into the uh, 2016 World Series because you uh, had a lot of, obviously, connections to it. It was the first World Series that you experienced in your lifetime of the Cubs winning. Of course, you know, I assume you weren't around in 1945 or 1908. Um, So 
to have not won for 108 years and not been in a World Series since 1945. You had the curse of the goat. You mentioned uh, the Bartman incident in 20, uh, 2003. Um, what was it like to experience that World Series? I know you went to Game 4, but I kind of want to hear your story about Game 7 because I found that fascinating too. So, yeah, I actually went to Game 5, I think, when they went oh, down 3-1. Uh, which was even more depressing. That was John Lackey had a really crappy start and it was the last game in Wrigley and I took my dad, we flew out. It was like a pilgrimage. And that the time before it was amazing, like walking around Wrigley, walking into Wrigley World Series and the game was like such a disappointment. We were so bummed afterwards and felt so down because they're down, you know, they're down three to two. Yep. Um, they dropped two of three at home. Game seven. Um, so during the World Series, I was doing my show and in fact, I would put, I had a huge screen up in the studio that I could watch it silently while I was doing the show. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and then I would, and then they would like, the, the control room would, as soon as we went to commercial break, pipe in the sound. <laughs> oh, sweet. So I would like, did for like we have, you know, four minute commercial breaks and then like 3.58, it would go out. I'd like do the next block, then watch. Um, so I would get in a, you know, I'd get in a car and I'd watch whatever network had it, I think Fox or whatever had like the Fox. app. So I'd watch. And there's a, there's a Chicago sports bar sort of in Gowanus um, here in Brooklyn and started going there to watch a few of the games. And so on, on the night of game seven, Kate met me there, my wife, Luke and my brother's fiance, my dad, um, his sister from Chicago and we were all packed into this bar that was so, so crowded and so hot. And it was so overheating that it was melt. It was overheating the speaker wires. So the speakers Oof. kept going out. And I just, I feel uncomfortable listening to you describe that. It was, but it was an incredible atmosphere. We're, we're packed in. I mean, I'm sure we were like over the fire code. And, you know, they... I think Madden makes a bunch of questionable moves. He pulls Kyle Hendricks early. He puts in John Lester. Lester looks shaky. He has a throwing error on a play at the plate. And then Araldus Chapman comes in and gives up the homer to Rajay Davis. Crushing. Hook down the left field line on a, you know, 100-mile-per-hour fastball to tie the game. And then there's the rain delay. And... I was so despondent and so upset. I was just like, I can't watch this team lose this among a lot of other people. <laughs> like I can't, I can't, I can't be around everyone's sadness and disappointment. I need, like, we need to go home. I called an Uber. I told Kate, I was like, we got to go home because I can't like, I'm going to use the rain delay to go home and watch this loss. Cause I was like, they're definitely losing. The momentum had shifted. Yeah. The momentum has shifted. They're also on the road, you know, so that, and, and, and also your, your, your slam door shut closer had just given up the tying Homer and he had been worked to death over the last three days. So like, yeah. and it's not like we had another arm in the bullpen that you could count on. Um, and so I was about to go home. My dad was like, you sure you want to go home? I was like, yeah, he's like, just, he's like, stay. And then he made a reference to the myth of Sisyphus, which is the Camus essay about, you know, which my dad really loves and I love too. And I think partly because of him about, you know, you, you sort of find joy in the struggle and, and the last line, it's about Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill and how it never actually, he never accomplishes his aims, but that's actually the sort of 
metaphor for human life and human struggle on the planet in an absurd and meaningless world where we just sort of do our tasks and that we find, you know, the, the last line of the essay famously is one imagines Sisyphus happy, that you find some satisfaction in the, in, in the sort of <laughs> the struggle of living. And so I was like, okay, I'll stay. And then, you know, then they, they won. Um, and um, everyone lost their minds. Uh, and we were all, you know, drinking outside in the street. Um, and it was, it was amazing. It was pure it was, joy, I'm sure pure 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 joy i think there's somewhere on social media of me in a cubs jersey very drunkenly singing go cubs go <laughs> uh, while taking a swig of malort that someone had <laughs> brought i mean it's all worth it right it's all worth it standing in a sweaty bar crowded oh, absolutely you know, and i was so happy like i i was you know obviously uh, just to be able to experience that moment of victory with everyone as opposed to by myself in my house. You know. Yeah, you know, it made me think because I was uh, I used to be a reporter in uh, in Houston and I was there during the 2017 World Series and during game 7 I was watching the game at a bar in Houston, but I was the only Dodgers fan, so there were I was surrounded by Astros fans and when the Dodgers got down 5-1, I was just like I can't be here for this. So I understand where you're where you were coming from and they ended up ended up losing but I didn't want to be there when the Astros won having the all these fans just go crazy at my expense yeah so I I totally get it but I'm glad that you stayed and that the Cubs won and I'm also glad that the Dodgers finally uh got a legitimate World Series in 2020 um before I let you go Chris I I did want to bring up uh one of your uh, old tweets and this is a this is a good tweet it's not a bad receipt at all um but in 2017 you tweeted um quoting this uh something I maul a lot if I took a season's worth of plate appearances in the MLB, would I get a single hit? The answer is no. And I found that interesting because, you know, I wanted to know if your opinion has changed since you tweeted that in 2017. And I also want to ask you about uh, former pitcher Dan Heron actually commented and said that you would get at least one hit. So where do you fall on that argument there? So funnily, pursuant to that, Fangraphs wrote a whole article on this topic where they like attempted to crunch the numbers. Um, and they and they came to the conclusion that Dan Heron was that like, I would probably get like between one and three hits. Wow. And, and by I meaning like, I, I am a perfectly decent athlete. Um, but like, I didn't even play high school baseball. Um, like high school, I played high school basketball. I've continued to play basketball through my adult life. I love it. Like I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm a better, probably better basketball player than a baseball player. So I'm not even like a, I'm not a high school baseball player. I'm not a college baseball player. I'm just like a dude, right? Like just a <laughs> guy who watches baseball, who's like competent enough that I can like swing a bat and like played little league and was, was decent at it. Yes. And they just like through sheer repetition, they thought if I'm just like throwing my bat out there, that it'll basically run into like, it'll <laughs> run into a, a fastball at some point. I mean, uh, look, if you could learn how to bunt, you could well, that's also true. Although, again, every time you know, every time you see a pitcher up there who has to sacrifice, you realizing that you realize that bunting is harder than it looks. Yeah, yeah especially um, now because they throw over 100 miles an hour consistently. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, you know, I was at a batting cage last summer, like pre-pandemic. I guess I was like up with family up in Michigan, and uh, there's like a little, you know, entertainment area that like a little entertainment park that's got like a go kart and it's got you know. Wall, you know bumper boats and stuff like that it's got a batting cage so i went over the batting cage 
I mean, it's just wild. Like the, they, they had it, there's one at 60 miles an hour. Yep. And like, you know, again, you take enough swings, you, you catch up to it. You're, you're, you're fine. You're not like yep. crushing it, but you're fine. But like that's 60 miles an hour. Yeah. <laughs> and that's nothing is there. No, no one's throwing any breaking stuff. Like just the thought, the thought that, I mean, the two things that just seem the most impossible to me in professional sports is, you know, getting a hit off a good major league pitcher and, and being a quarterback, making a completion amidst like a blitz. Yep. Like both of them just seem incomprehensible to me. Like, I, I, <laughs> I know. And I think because enough people have made it look so easy over the years, you don't really realize how difficult it is. Yeah. And I've never like, I've never been to, I'm trying to think, I guess I've been to batting cages that go up to 70 or 80, but I've never, I have never, I don't know if you have, like I've never stood in the box against a 90 mile plus no. hour fastball. And it's, and it's funny. But like I would, I don't even think I'd be able to like, not just bail out. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, that's crazy because when you get in the batting cage and you watch a couple go by at 60 or 70 miles an hour, you're like, oh, man. Yeah, right. You're like, exactly. And then you start, you can adjust your timing up so that you're beginning your swing as the ball is like dropping into the thing. And you can get to the point where you're like timing it out correctly. But again, that's it. That's at 30 miles per hour below a major league fastball. I know. Um, so I, I said that was the last question, but just finally, because for the purposes of this show, one of the big themes that we talk about a lot is uh, passing the game of baseball down to uh, the future generations. And my grandfather passed it down to my father and my father passed it down to me. And I think that that is one of the big ways that baseball is going to be able to stand the test of time is that we continue to do that. So I'm curious um, from your standpoint of your kids, I know you have three kids, um, what, you know, uh, do you, have you passed down the love of baseball to them and are they Cubs fans? They are Cubs fans. They, they, they're, um, it's funny. They're not like, they're not sports obsessives the way that I was at their age. Um, but they are Cubs fans. They came like, I had a great, I threw out the first pitch at a Cubs game in 2016, uh, in September, I think. Mm-hmm. And they came to that and we've got these great pictures of them. They're on the field. They have Cubs jerseys on, they all have Cubs, you know, gear and they know that we're Cubs fans and, um, and I try to watch baseball with them when I can. Um, I, we'll see. It'll be interesting. Like they're not, they just are not by, by their age. Well, my oldest is about, she's girl, my son who's six. And then I have a two-year-old girl as well. But by basically by six, between six and nine, I was already like a kind of an obsessive. Same. Um, and they are not. So we'll see. We'll see what develops. I don't, I'm not going to like pressure them into being sports fanatics because like that's just. I don't really think you can pressure anybody into that. It just, it just. Yeah. And also like it's, it's fine to take all that mental energy and time and put it on something else. (laughs) Yes. I know it takes a a crazy kind of person to do this to, to ourselves, but uh, Hey, Chris, thank you so much for uh, joining us on meeting on the mound. It was so much fun to talk to you and I hope you had a nice time. You bet. Enjoyed it. Awesome. Thanks, man. Bye. 